Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Let's knock out one more installment for the week, and let's see if I can get them all posted tomorrow. Maybe later tonight. I don't know. We'll see. Just waiting on my experimental audio software to finish its thing. Boy, it did not seem to be that great. And uh, thank goodness for backups, right? So let's get into, let me save that and do this and start another thing. I told you at the beginning, this was going to be like the experience of going to an actual reading. Uh, And it is exactly like the experience of going to an actual reading. Let me assure you, uh, it is exactly like being in a place with me where I am about to do a reading and a whole bunch of tech is iffy, and we just need to figure that out. So, anyway, welcome to episode 17 of Social Distancing Radio. And, like I said last time, and the time before that, let me know what you think about the idea of doing public domain radio, where I'd have another author friend come on and read a few minutes from their work, and then read a few minutes from public domain work that they really love, maybe something that they loved in high school, that kind of thing. Oh my god, talking like Withrow makes my actual accent come out like crazy. So, back to professional, Michael. Uh, at work, I tell people, well, I tell one particular friend of mine at work that I present as a gay Vulcan. Uh, anyway, let's get into this, and let's see... What up? What's up with Withrow and Jennifer? So, part three, or sorry, the third installment of part three of Perishables, the Doorbusters. I went through Garden first, but Uber Bargains is more of a clothing and groceries and media place than it is a heavy-duty hardware store. They didn't have anything that overwhelmingly exceeded the gifts my undead condition already gives me, But I grabbed a garden fork with a shaft about a yard long, and on my hurried walk through kitchen equipment, I grabbed a long knife with a rubberized handle that, at a quick wobble, seemed relatively well balanced. When I arrived in sporting goods, I went straight to the aisle labeled Baseball Softball Tennis, and there I found Jennifer holding a long softball bat out with both hands as though weighing it. She nearly jumped out of her skin when I came around the corner with my billowing old black trench coat and the glower of someone readying himself to do unpleasant work. Abruptly, she recognized me. Her eyes narrowed in suspicion. Electronics are over there. She gestured easily with the bat. She'd carried one before, had swung one many times. Her gesture was effortless, thoughtless. Aisle I-27. I held up the garden fork and the knife. I brought you these. She arched one eyebrow at me. Why? Because we need to contain the threat. I said it in as matter-of-fact a manner as I could. 
I didn't want to sound hysterical, and I didn't want anyone else who might overhear me to perk up at some unusual tone of voice. She studied me carefully for three of her own heartbeats, then wobbled the bat in her hands. I'm more comfortable with this, but thanks. How did you know where to find me? Lucky guess. She produced a little chuckle that was not amused. And I'm the Queen of Spain. Why don't you need them yourself? I hesitated, and she saw me hesitate, and she impressed the hell out of me by saying, Later, when we're all okay. Right now, we have zombies to kill. When she said it, with the Z word and everything, that made it real. Everything snapped into focus too quickly, and I held up a finger. It was partly to correct her, but it was partly to give myself a second to reorient myself. Not kill. Contain. Her mind worked for a second, and then she looked me dead in the eye. You brought piercing and slashing weapons. Those don't produce a lot of containment, generally speaking. And anyway, we need weapons that do bludgeoning damage. A pause as she nodded at smiles where she stood beside me, his back turned to us as he watched my back. Luckily for him, the jaws of an animal do all three. Did you just make a Dungeons and Dragons joke? I blinked at her in slow amazement. I'd gotten it, of course. One has to pass a lot of long nights when one plans to live forever. Don't change the subject. She was stern, and I could hear in her voice that she did not relish this return to duty, this reimmersion in whatever specific experience had never quite ended. And don't pretend we can just sit on those monsters and hope they get better either. Sister, compassion is not what's holding me back. I glanced towards the ceiling and the nearest of the omnipresent black half-spheres attached to it. This place is covered up in cameras, and I am not interested in a murder rap. She followed my gaze and turned down the corner of her mouth in obvious displeasure. Jennifer was serious, thoughtful, thinking tactically, but she hadn't worked out a strategy beyond kill everything. I'd seen a couple of vampires go on benders and have to be put down, but those were episodes of chaos and opportunistic attacks made without any thought beyond getting at the nearest bag of warm blood they could find. Jennifer's expression and manner were almost reptilian in comparison, cold and calculating. If this is what we think it is, she replied, no one is going to blame us for what's about to happen. Hell, they'll hardly notice who actually does the save the day part. I know now isn't the time to ask, I said, but what do you do for a living? I mean, other than this, did you used to be like a marine or something? Jennifer snorted at me. I'm a mainframe systems administrator. That was just Word salad to me, and my blank look said as much. She elaborated with great patience. I'm an engineer. I nodded. Got it. You build stuff. The look on her face said I was wrong, but I had other concerns. Now, back to figuring out how to disable instead of kill. I don't doubt I can hold one of them still, and maybe you could, like, hit them upside the head or something, or tie them up. Last time I, I cleared my throat. Well, let's just say killing wasn't off the table. It was kind of the main course. It was different, though. They'd been dead a long time. We're smart enough to know the difference between them and this. I gestured vaguely in the direction of the front of the store. These people are under the influence of a chemical weapon, and there might be some way to help them. Even Smiles here knows the difference between disabling and killing. Promise. We can do just as well or better. These are not those. Or at least we can hope not. Her eyelids relaxed and her gaze unfocused for a moment as the movie of her own history played out. Might have been dead a long time, too. She shook it off at the sound of a distant scream.
Let's go. Hell, I said, they might not even get inside. They're outside, and you said you were going to call the cops. We just have to keep the lid on things for a few minutes, right? Get these under control, you call the cops from outside, and bang, we're back to normal. She looked at me with something I couldn't entirely parse, but I saw in it a little fear and a little pity and a whole lot of sadness. I said, let's go. We turned together and half-jogged all the way towards the distant front of the store, neck and neck and neck. We'd been gone from the front door maybe four minutes, five tops, and I figured the general front door area of the Uber bargains would be a killing field or empty of any sign of life except for the handful of initial victims of whatever that lady had used to gas everyone. Instead, it was like a Laurel and Hardy routine in slow motion. Most of the people out there were still out there, though some had taken off, and I noticed some empty spaces interspersed between the cars that were still there. Some people were just stupid, I guess, or determined to get their goddamn big-screen television, and some of them were obscenely fascinated by what was happening. I mean, it wasn't like the existence of zombies was a secret. But not very many people had seen one. Everyone saw it on the news when it happened, and lots of people on the internet claimed to have seen a zombie, or even to have fought and killed one that night, but the truth is that there was only a tiny handful of survivors who had seen any real action that night, and it was easy to spot that they were telling the truth. When they would get interviewed on some 32nd anniversary spot on the local news, for instance, I could always tell if they were for real by their hollow gaze and the way they didn't seem too enthusiastic to talk about whatever experience they had to endure. It's kind of how I imagined it must have been to stand on the street and watch one of the planes hit on 9-11. Lots of people claim they were in New York and that they heard something in the distance, but nobody much seems to get out there and brag about watching a few hundred people die in an instant. Footage of the crashes has a kind of sacrosanct quality, like a 60 frames per second tombstone. And for all that our collective half-invented memories, the events themselves are routinely exploited by politicians and media assholes and everyone else who makes a living listening to the sound of their own voice. No one seems eager to put the actual events on television to remind anyone of anything in particular. The drift and gaze and distant stare of an actual experiencer of Z-Day are unmistakable, and they do nothing to glamorize the event. The people outside the Uber bargains were mostly moving in big arcs and swoops, some jogging in place to try to stay ready to dodge, but mostly just doing whatever seemed to keep them away from the people who initially seemed to be affected. Phone lady and helpful kid. They were advancing slowly, arms twitching, eyes rolled back in their heads, jaws slack, moving towards whoever screamed next. That person would basically lead them around the group while everyone else dodged out of the way until someone else screamed and the zombie's attention was drawn to them instead. A couple of people were on cell phones, and one of the other kids who had been out there was filming everything on his fancy phone. People are so stupid sometimes. Okay, I said, but so had Jennifer. We had both looked at one another to issue an order. We both paused. Then we both opened our mouths, stopped again. And finally, I said as fast as I could, you open the doors the next time one walks by and we'll rush them. I gestured at smiles. Jennifer looked away at the two walkers and then nodded, breast shallow. They're both wearing coats. That's good. I learned a thing about that in a self uh, I learned a thing about that in a self-defense class I took after, you know. She shook it off in a heartbeat. Anyway, yeah, doors. I observed the movements of Helpful Kid and could hear the click as some part of my brain switched on, one that didn't exist or didn't function before I got the big bite. 
and I started plotting attack vectors. They're new, so they're probably stronger than the ones I dealt with, but those guys were pretty weak. They mostly seemed to operate on shock and awe. Jennifer nodded at me in silent agreement. I drew another breath. Roping zombies. I'm sure there's money in that at a rodeo somewhere. I couldn't help but grin. I'm never so happy as I am when I have a fight on my hands. Okay, here comes one now, on the count of three. Jennifer and I both counted her up, me down, both of us using her heartbeat as the clock without even thinking about it. Then she mashed the big red button and the doors threw themselves open. Smiles and I shot at preternatural speed through the first doorway and then the second, and the air for a growl had just hit my voice box when all 350 pounds of me nailed helpful kid on the shoulder and I body surfed him across asphalt for 10 feet, blood smearing behind us, smiles sailing through the air at my shoulder the whole way in one continuous leaping glide before landing on the back of the kid's legs with a clatter of thuds. The smell of fresh blood did wonders for my enthusiasm. Helpful kid was slow by my standards, but he was strong. Just as strong as an athletic youngster can possibly be, dead or otherwise. Shockingly so, and his eyes were rolled so far back I couldn't see anything of his irises. He twisted up his fingers like claws and tried to get his arms raised, but I was already standing and had him by the shoulders. I picked him up, spun him over to face the pavement, and slammed him back down in one fluid motion. Smiles wrapped his jaws around the back of the guy's neck to hold him in place, and I popped both of his shoulders out of their sockets with a heartless twist. There would be no standing up under his own power now. For all her intensity, Jennifer was only human and so vastly slower than I am when I've worked up ahead of steam. She took a left as she came out of the doors, bat in hand, but by the time she spotted the other lady, there was an ear-splitting shriek. A middle-aged man had phone lane attached to his forearm, and he was screaming like a mezzo-soprano, eyes wide as blood shot in thin jets from the corners of phone lady's mouth. I realized that the one thing I had never witnessed on Z-Day for all the many zombies I killed and all the houses I cleared and all the dead I stepped over on the way to making sure my home, at least, would be safe and sound for another night, was the sight of a zombie actually biting someone. I hadn't even been sure they did that. I mean, that's straight out of the movies, right? The thing I fought that night killed plenty of humans, but they never seemed to try to eat any of them. It was unexpected, and I hate the unexpected. Containment? Jennifer said with visible skepticism, and we both moved. I charged directly at Phone Lady, but Jennifer was standing right there with the bat already raised, and something in Phone Lady recognized her as the more proximate threat. Phone Lady's mouth opened, the guy jogged backwards three steps in terror, and then her tongue lolled out in a way that said bite in a clear, distinct voice. Jennifer was bringing her bat around for a swing, but she would be too slow, and I could tell better than anyone else. I shot like I'd been fired from a cannon with all the speed the blood can give me to throw an arm up between them, moving fast enough to be on top of Phone Lady before she could suffer whatever instinctual recalcitrance had made them evade me that night years ago. Phone Lady's teeth clamped down on the sleeve of my jacket and then, to my utter shock, tore through and hit skin and broke that, too, with a strength that I would never have expected from her. Ancient, stagnant blood, the color of an old bruise, welled up at the corners of Phone Lady's lips as the pressure of her bite forced some of mine into her. I had mostly just intended to get in front of her, 
but I was already bringing my other arm around in a punch that connected with enough force to knock Phone Lady's mouth open. I pulled my arm free and stood back a step fast enough to be out of the way when the end of Jennifer's bat arced past flawlessly in cinematic slow motion and touched that little dip in Phone Lady's temple. I saw blood shoot from the opposing ear before she spun in the air and smacked against the pavement. Smile skidded up short in front of me, sniffing the air. The growl was gone, but he seemed afraid to approach, unsure what to make of this disabled enemy. We were all silent for a long second. I looked up, and Jennifer was staring at my arm, then at me. She started to say something, but Phone Lady preempted the conversation by puking her guts out abruptly all over the sidewalk. And that is the third installment of Perishables Part 3, The Doorbusters. Thank you very much for joining me. I'll talk to you next time. Oh, and I'm going to finish my reading line. Mm. You don't need to stick around for that. I'll see you next time. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square. Available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org. Thank you.